Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, if you would, please turn to Psalm chapter 32. If you're newer here, in the summer we typically go through 10 psalms a summer. Uh, And we are in the 30s, so we did 31 last week and 32. Uh, Why? Well, the Psalms are one of those books in the Bible where you can see yourself very clearly and easily. And Psalm 32 is particularly that. It should be immediately, easily applicable to your life. Because it deals with how you deal with the wrong you do. And how to deal with it rightly, simply, faithfully. And so I hope this is very, very helpful to you. Let me read Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in his spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover in my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the great rush or in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bitten bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's ask God's help. Teach us, O God, to seek you with all of our heart, and not one wander in stubborn refusal to deal honestly with our sin. Teach us to fear you, Teach us not to fashion for ourselves our own way to cover our sin. May we treasure in our hearts your word of free forgiveness of sin so that we may learn quickly to confess and have faith to believe and so not sin further against you. Amen. So let me start uh, in dealing with Psalm 32 in big picture. I want to step out of Psalm 32 and look at the nature of Scripture and its help to you and then Genesis 1 through 3 and sin and how to deal with it. So first, don't take Scripture for granted. Don't take it for granted. Scripture is given to you to be very helpful to you. You know, God is not silent to you in how to live your life at all. In every area of it, particularly in dealing with what you deal with constantly. Sin that you commit against God and others and the sin that others commit against you. All Scripture we read is breathed out by God. Now, the doctrine of Scripture doesn't just stop with what it is. That it's just God's Word. 
that text says more, doesn't it? All scriptures breathed out and what? Profitable for you, useful for you, so that you can have everything you need to do in order to live a godly life. So all scriptures from God, God gave it for the purpose of being very useful to you in every way to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, to train you. What for? So you can be more useful to God's glory, to the church, to each other. In our statement of faith, we say, Scripture is without error. It's the complete and final authority for what? All of your life. In the Westminster Confession of, uh, Westminster Confession of Sin, Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, Scripture is God revealing himself and his will to the church, to you, to preserve and spread the truth, For what purpose? To establish you and to comfort you against the corruptions of your flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. And so one of the key tools God has given you to convict you, to stab you with his sword is hearing the word preached so that you can continue to kill your sin. So why was Psalm 32 given to you? What's it here for? Is it for you? Yeah. For what purpose? Well, to help you deal with your sin as a Christian. That you can have more assurance that God is your Father. So it's mosquito season. And they're annoying. But they're no big deal, right? Really. They're not that big of a deal. Termites are a big deal. Termites will destroy a home. They're a little insect, a little bug that eats wood. And if you don't deal with it, it will destroy your house. Sin is like that. It seems little. It's no big deal, right? But the longer you let it go, the more it piles up, the more destructive it is. Some of you have been on the receiving end of that kind of sin, haven't you? And you realize the life-altering destruction of sin committed against you. Maybe you're on the giving end of that. Your sin piled up and its destructive effects on the lives of people. So how does a Christian deal with sin? So Psalm 32 is here for. So listen. Receive it by faith. And second then, we have to know ourselves then too, don't we? So Genesis 1 to 3. You remember that you and I were not made sinfully. We, we were made without sin. Adam and Eve were sinlessly perfect, complete in perfect fellowship with God, with each other, with all of creation. But they turned from that, didn't they? And so they sinned. They rebelled against God and were ruined in sin, and we have inherited that demise along with them. And so you know this about yourself, right? You know that you are inclined within yourself to not do the good that you would like to do. That you are inclined, drawn to, in your affections, to do the things that you know you shouldn't do. Is that true of you? What do you find it easier to do? The sin or the righteousness? Which one? How about in your thought life? As you're just thinking about somebody else here who's not even doing anything to you, do you find it easier to to think right, good, building up thoughts about them or to kind of Ooh, I wouldn't know where that. Which one do you find more natural? And it's the other. 
We're full of sin. You, like, it's an unrestrained force from within you, but it's you. So what are you going to do with it? What do you do with it? Well, right away in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, there's, there's two ways they, they deal, try to deal with it, right? There's their way and there's God's way. What do they do? They hide. They're stubborn. They try to cover themselves. And it's kind of funny because it notes that they just wore loincloths, that bikini. They were immodest. Bikinis are immodest. Speedos, tight-fitting, immodest. They, they were immodest in covering this. But they tried to do it on their own terms, didn't they? Stubbornly refusing to deal with it. And then creating a fake pseudo-atonement by their own way. So self-covering. Or there's God's way, grace. When God's come, what does God do? What does he do? He promises them a savior. And then he covers them neck to toe in his own covering. And so we see that language in Psalm 32, don't we? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so it's, you're going to deal with sin in one of two ways. Your way, your terms, or God's. And only one really works, doesn't it? Only one leads to knowing God's fatherly love. Only one leads to restoration and reconciliation of relationships, both with God and with each other. Only one way works. And the reality in your life is you are driven by the need to deal with your sin, by the need for atonement. It's a thirst that can't be quenched in your life. This is at the root of many of our misbehaviors and psychological problems. You need atonement. You need to deal with it. How are you going to do it? Well, it's going to be your way or God's way. It's going to be eating, 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 or God's grace. It's going to be blowing up in anger at others, or it's God's grace. It's going to be binge-watching Netflix in order just to have something playing at all times so you can distract yourself from your guilt, or it's God's grace. It's going to be isolating yourself from others, or it's going to be God's grace. It's going to be alcohol. It's going to be buying things. It's going to be pornography. It's going to be something to medicate, or it's going to be God's grace. So Psalm 32 is an experienced sinner who has repeatedly tried all of the other ways and here again returns to the simplicity of acknowledging his sin before God and being forgiven and the joy that comes with that. It's so simple. Here's something to learn. Doing it on your own terms is always way more complicated and terrible than God's ways, which are very simple and pure and lovely. This is why if you read, like, say, Psalm 119, God's laws are a delight. Why? Because they're so simple. They're so pure. So that's Psalm 32. So let me just take it apart here, the psalm, real quick, and then I want to apply it in a few specific ways. So right away, at the beginning, a mass skill of David. You'll remember that these psalms are songs. Have I said that enough to you? They're songs. So a masculine, we don't, we don't know what that word is, just like we don't know what the word selah is. 
probably some musical term. A masculine might be a type of song, and a selah is some notation in the song itself. But it's from David. We don't know what it means. In fact, you probably have a footnote. Mine says, probably a musical or liturgical term. That's like a snooty way of saying, I don't know. So, uh, you have a few parts in this song. He begins with Beatitudes. Remember Jesus on the uh, Sermon on the Mount? Blessed is the blessed, blessed. That word blessed is like truly happy. Truly happy is the man. So the Psalms are constantly doing this. They're showing you the path to true, deep, abiding happiness. Happy is the man, what? Who's forgiven. Happy is the one whose sins are covered. So it starts with a a beatitude seeking to draw you in. Because you want that, don't you? Who doesn't want happiness? Joy. And it's true. This rings true, doesn't it? Have you ever had a relationship where there's been a lot of sin and the sin's forgiven? What do you feel after that? Relief. Comfort. Joy. Happiness. And so do you want that? Do you want to experience the joy and the pleasure that God has set out for you? Well, it comes in it. This is to awaken your heart to true happiness in God's forgiveness. And then David gives you three verses, three, four, and five that are autobiographical. Very simple. I kept silent about my sin and I groaned all day long. God's hand was heavy on me. He He gets to what we get to right now. We are in the, well, it's not really heat of summer, but we're in the some kind of heat of summer with no rain. And what does your grass look like if you're not watering it? What do your flowers or your gardens look like if you're not watering it? Parched. That's what he became like under God's disciplining fatherly hand for his refusal to acknowledge his sin. And he's like a kid who lied. Kids, you do this, right? You eat something you shouldn't, like the plate sitting in front of you, the fork is still in your hand, it's smeared on your face, and all you say is, it wasn't me. That's what David's like. We're children in that. We think God doesn't see. And it shriveled them up. This is what refusal to acknowledge sin does. It's a very strange thing. To close yourself off is to invite internal great difficulty of conviction. And God, praise him, will not relent. And so David was very, very troubled. His bones were wasting away. He's groaning all day long. And you know what he was probably doing in that season? Blaming somebody else. Blaming circumstances coming up with all of the reasons within him why it's not his fault. Don't, don't we do that? And then you have the simple turn in verse 7. Sorry, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity, right? He didn't sow fig leaves for himself, loin coverings. He just acknowledged it. He, he opened himself up to it. He was honest. He was no longer deceitful within himself. He confessed his transgressions and the Lord forgave the iniquity of his sin. And then we have that first Selah. The the best thinking on what this word is, again, we don't know what it is, is that this is a pause in the music. It's a a time where the music, you know, has this 
pause in it or, or, or the, the, the singer stops singing so that you can dwell on this point. It could be what's going on. It would be a good point in the psalm for that to happen, wouldn't it? What a delightful thing. The simplicity of it. Right? The rain came and watered the grass and it became green again as soon as he just said, God, I lied. God, I was so greedy. God, I was so harsh to my wife. God, I just screamed with the kids all day long. There's great relief there. And then in the last half of the psalm, he turns from the student to the teacher. He has learned the joy of God's forgiveness, of the simplicity of trusting in God's grace. And so he now turns to instruct us. So therefore, in verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer. So confession of sin is a prayer, isn't it? That's a kind of prayer. So he's urging us to do this. It's a protection. It's in, in a great rush of great waters. So he's flood imagery here. It won't touch you. Christ is an ark. So God becomes our hiding place. He preserves us. And so we want to shout to him. So David is instructing us. And verse 9 is humorous, isn't it? We did it at the beginning of the service in our call to worship. We're like mules. We're like horses. The Bible does not spare us. The Bible, God is so kind to us. He doesn't flatter you at all. You stubborn oxes. Don't be like that. Aren't you like that? Aren't you a stubborn mule? Kids? Father's Day, right? What do you think dad wants from you? Quit being such a stubborn ox. Wives? What does your husband want from you? Just please admit you're wrong once. Once will be enough, sisters. You, will, you could probably get him to do anything if you would just admit that you were wrong. I know it's very difficult. So why? That's how he ends. Why confession? And this gets to the first point of application. One of the things that anybody who's in leadership is tempted to do is figure out what's the one thing I need to do to get this to happen. So if you, the, the 90s and the early 2000s, well, 80s, 90s, early 2000s were all about the, the secret magic to church growth. Willow Creek and Bill Hybels and that knob out in California, right? If you just do this one thing, like we did this one thing, then your church too can be 20,000 people. What's the one thing? Well, what's the one thing for us as Christians? Let's say if you were to read all of the Psalms, all 150 of them, What's the main theme you would see drawn out again and again and again and again in the Psalms? I, I, you know, it's hard to pin down one thing here. But one of the things you see, let, let's just turn to Psalm 1. You, you'll hear a familiar word here. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is a man. Remember that word blessed is happy. Now, don't, be careful here. Like, sometimes you want to make this um, distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness is fleeting and temporal and based on circumstances. Joy is deep and lasts in the body. I, they're the same thing. I'll use true happiness if that will help you. Truly happy is the man 
who doesn't walk in the counsel of the good, so on and so forth. And then in verse 2, his delight, his internal positive deep feeling of happiness and joy, his delight, his pleasure, is in God's word, in God. This is a theme we'll see throughout the entirety of the Psalms. Look at Psalm 8. One of our favorite Psalms, you know it. He's doing two things here. He's meditating on the goodness and glory of God in creation. How majestic is your name? When I look at the heavens in verse 3, the work of your fingers, blah, blah, blah. And then he looks at us. What is man that you are mindful? He's delighting in God's mercy to us. So he's delighting in God. He's reveling in what God has made. Look at Psalm 10. This is opposite, but it's getting at the same theme from a different direction. Oh Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's sorrowful. Why? Because the delight he had in God is not there. The feeling of comfort and happiness and security in God is gone. Why Why are you gone? Same thing in Psalm 13. Look at Psalm 13 verse 1. Oh Lord, how long, oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? So it's the opposite of it. So this theme is this happiness, this joy that we have in God. And the absence of it is misery itself. Look at Psalm 16, one of my favorite psalms. Verse 11. I think this is one of the most scandalous verses in all the Bible. You make known to me. That's grace. God makes it known to you. God gives it. It's not earned. It's freely given. You make known to me what? The path of life. And what do you find there on the path of life? In salvation, in God. Fullness of joy in God's presence. Pleasure forevermore at his right hand. Can Christians say that? Pleasure. But isn't pleasure like a dirty word? Isn't pleasure something that heathens get? Christians, the absence of pleasure is godliness. If I'm going to be a true Christian, I need to be miserable, monkish, nunnish. No. We see it right away in our psalm too, right at the beginning. How happy is the one who's forgiven. So this is a major theme in the psalms. Joy in God. Why? Because you're near God. That's what the Psalms are for. They're songs meant to help you on this earth because you can't see God. You can't touch God. You can't feel his embrace. So you sing in order to experience this pleasure, this joy, this happiness in the Lord. This is why we confess our sin. It isn't just to feel better about ourselves. It's to be restored again to God and experience the joy and pleasure of being in his presence. That's what this is about. That's the one thing for a Christian. That's the one thing for us. We want God's fatherly affection and love. That's our joy. We want the security of being safe in God's fatherly arms. 
We want the privilege of being called God's children by faith in Jesus Christ, and sin disrupts that fellowship. And so the reason that we need to confess our sin, the reason that we want to confess our sin, the reason that there's happiness in confessing your sin is because you're restored again to the affection of your Father. That's the happiest place for a Christian. We want God. Jesus says the same thing. Turn to Matthew 13. This one verse parable. A world of true happiness in one verse. This is the entire Bible summarized in a verse. Matthew 13, 44. It's a good sound, isn't it? People turning. The kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven here is shorthand for the place that God is and the power from which God resides and the place that we want to be more than anything else. The kingdom of heaven, like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. So it's a summer Sunday afternoon. You're going through a, for a walk through a field and you come upon this incredible treasure. And the treasure is of such value itself that it's worth selling everything else you own to get that. That's what God is for us. That's what God is for us. So the message in this parable is that everything you own of any value, money, house, land, retirement fund, investments, all material possession, all your vehicles, boats, UTVs, clothes, even all the relationships that are of value, it'd be worth losing them all, selling them all to get this one thing. And so the poorest man isn't the one with the least wealth, but the one unwilling to exchange everything for that one thing. The wealthiest man or woman isn't the one with the most wealth and possessions, but the one who is willing to exchange everything to get that one thing. And in Psalm 32, God in his kingdom, your relationship with God is so valuable that you'll confess your sin because you want him again. That's what Psalm 32 is about for you. Your sin disrupts your fellowship with the Father. Your stubbornness to acknowledge your sin disrupts your communion, your intimacy, your joy in experiencing His divine fatherly pleasure in you. And so that's why you want to confess your sins. That's why you'll learn to refuse to fashion for yourselves little ways to deal with your guilt and sin and just trust in Christ because you want to know the Father more. So Psalm 32 is a song of contrition and confession because David's unconfessed sin has removed the happiness of nearness to God, which is the greatest treasure in all the world, worth losing everything for, worth selling everything for. If you got that one thing, you're the happiest being in the world. But if you don't have it, or if it's disrupted by your unconfessed sin, then you're miserable. Now, let's get this right. We've been preaching through Galatians slowly. And so let me remind you of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins there. Because the temptation you and I have is to deal with our sin, as I've said, frequently on our own terms. We devise our own ingenious ways to add to what Jesus has done. 
Now before faith came, this is Galatians 3, 23 to 26. Now before faith came, you were held captive under the law, imprisoned until faith would be revealed. Now remember, the law of God, God's commands, all of them have a good purpose in your life. What are they? What's, what's the, a primary purpose of God's law in your life? Yeah, to show you your sin. In fact, here the language is to keep you captive, oppressed under it. It's to show you that there's no help within yourself. In fact, there's no help in all the world. There's only one thing. Until faith. Faith in who? Christ. So the law was our guardian. Remember that word guardian in Galatians isn't a friendly term. This was a slave appointed by the master to oversee the young son harshly, discipline him, follow him everywhere, never let him out of his sight, beat him when he did something wrong, control every little moment of his life. Don't do that to your kids. That's what the law does. Because every time you read the law, you know your sin. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So remember, Psalm 32 is here written by a man with first-hand experience the stupidity of stubbornly refusing to acknowledge his sin, but then who did? And experienced the great joy of God's mercy. Now again, David has become a teacher of students. And he's got two kinds of students in his class. And, and you all are one of each of these, or likely you kind of flip-flop between them. You have the stubborn student just refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing, cheated on the test, and comes up with all manner of reasons why it wasn't cheating, stole the lunch of the kid in front of him, can give you a plausible explanation why it wasn't her. Just stubborn. You know the wrong, you can feel the wrong, but you're so stubborn. But the, the tricky thing with this person is, if anybody ever wrongs him, they better confess it. Or you're going to be all up one side and down another. They'll, they won't acknowledge their wrong, but they demand everybody acknowledge wrong to them. So very proud. That's one student, stubborn. The other is like wrongly tender. So overwhelmed by guilt. They do confess sin, but it's never enough. There's always something more they need to do. This student is very pliable in class. In fact, the teacher often really loves this student because they're so easy along with. They always admit when they do wrong, and then they try to do a whole bunch to make up for it. They sweep the class floor after school. They bring the teacher an apple every day. They Always try to put on a happy face and be better. They just wear themselves out. There's just this guilt-motivated need to do more, to do more, to do more, to do more, to do more. It's never enough to say, teacher, I was wrong. You say, I forgive you. That's never enough. There's always more to do. And what we've been seeing in Galatians is that the law can never lead to your forgiveness. Only simple faith in Christ. You must neither be stubborn and refuse to admit your wrong both to God and to each other, but nor must you kind of do it in your own efforts. Again, look at the simplicity of verse 5. 
I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the gospel. And it comes only because Jesus died and rose again. That's it. It's that simple, brothers and sisters. Your sin, your sin, there's only one way to deal with it. It isn't by stubborn refusal to admit it, nor is it an admission of it, and then you know, promising to do better and doing all this extra stuff. So you, you fathers have two children like that, don't you? You have the very stubborn child that you want to smack. And then you have this child who's just so pliable and always admits wrong, even when there's nothing wrong. Those are both problems. The tender child needs to get a little bit more stubbornness in him or her. Because they're going to need a backbone one day. They need to stand firm on truth and not move off it. The stubborn one needs much more humility and care. And that's you too, isn't it? Which one are you? Which one are you today? Which one were you this past week? All right, so let me go to your relationships with people here. My pastoral sense is how many of you find it much easier to confess your sin to God than to confess your sin to somebody else. Right. Right. Now, it's good to confess your sin to God. We need to. 1 John 1, 9, right? Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you all your sins and cleanse you of all iniquity. We do need to confess our sins to God. But what about each other? What would be the fruit of Psalm 32 in recognizing God's forgiveness of our sins. How should we deal with sin with each other? I was thinking on Father's Day, you know, you have the marriage relationship. Hopefully you as men have friendships with other men. And then you have the relationships with your children. If you as a Christian come to the place of recognizing the joy of being forgiven by God, How does that extend to your relationships with each other? Well, shouldn't it make you incredibly kind and tender-hearted towards others? Quick to forgive. Very patient and slow and holding a grudge or expecting immediate change in somebody else. And this is the problem, isn't it? We find it super easy to say to God, quick, I lied, please forgive me. But with each other... Very different. Now the danger there is, are you at all sorrowful for your sin when you confess it to God? Or why don't you fear God as much as you tremble before others? Now we can apply this very specifically, and I've already done one. Wives, it is my experience pastorally that sometimes, often, I don't know what number, wives really struggle to admit any wrongdoing to their husband. In fact, in our world, it is guys are, honestly, guys are taught to ask for forgiveness even when they don't don't do anything wrong in the marriage just to get through the pain. Guys, have you heard that before? It's crap. It's baloney. It's lying, isn't it? If If you don't have a fight in your marriage when you hadn't done it wrong and there needs to be an argument, then you'll not build the kind of depth of relationship that you, that you would otherwise. So wives, I would urge on you, if God has forgiven you, 
If God has been so kind and patient and gentle and tender with you, can't you admit wrong to your husband or to your children? Now, I'm not here excluding guys from that. Of course, guys can be stubborn oxes too. Might apply this to our children, especially you who are parenting young adults. Your children transition from that age of like being easier to suddenly no longer accepting what you say as a parent and arguing and becoming their own person. It is normal and right parents, fathers, for your child to become their own person and to differentiate from you. And that will often cause a lot of pain because they stink at it. And you do too. Because it's the first time they're doing it. And they're full of sin themselves. And so parents at that stage are often surprised that their child isn't acting like they did when they were seven anymore. And they can do a couple of things wrong. They can just squash it. They argue about everything. And they just go toe-to-toe constantly. Or they're just passive. I'm the more passive one. Mandy's the more going to fight it. That's probably good. You need to balance there. There are things you need to fight your teen on. And there are some things that you need to smile and walk away and know that it'll be better in a couple of years. It'll be okay. Young children, or uh, young adults, you know, you're probably, you can get very frustrated with your parents because why won't they just let me make a decision? Why can't I just fail? Why can't, I know what I'm doing here. I, I get to do these things too, right? And you get exasperated with your father or your mother. Like, have some mercy on them. They love you. They don't want to see you screw up. They're scared out of their minds of what's going to happen. You don't know the fear of it yet. Have some mercy on them. You want them to be patient with you, right? Raise your hand if you want your parent to be more patient with you. You're a liar. Raise your hand. Yeah. Well, expect, you should expect of yourself the same patience to your parents. Pray, seek advice from other parents who've been through it, get wisdom from them, but more than anything, forgive each other. Forgive each other. As God in Christ has forgiven you, forgive each other. This is the key, isn't it, to relationships? Forgive. So, we want as we see in Psalm 32, to deal with our sin by faith simply, just confessing it, for the purpose of intimacy and joy in our relationship with God, and then we want to extend that to our relationships with each other. Isn't that wise? Isn't the Bible so smart? Isn't God so intelligent? Doesn't it work very, very well? And so say yes to this. Say yes to the goodness of dealing with your sin so simply and quickly and moving on. Isn't God a good father in that he just doesn't berate you constantly for your sin, but just forgive you and then treats you infinitely better? And so let's extend each other that grace. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are so kind to us. Please, Father, renew our minds on that. Renew our minds to the simplicity and the eagerness 
and the love you have for us in our sin to forgive us. We find it so difficult to become convinced of that. So please renew us in that. Give us faith to receive very quickly your forgiveness as we confess. And then God, give us grace to extend that towards each other in, in our relationships, particularly in those relationships that are most close to us because they can be often the most painful. And so, Father, have mercy on us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the charge is this. It's Ephesians 4.32. would be a great one to memorize and make your prayer. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.